Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Acts chapter 2. We are in Acts chapter 2 as we continue our sermon series, He Lives, Aftershocks of the Empty Tomb. Jesus had died to take the sins of the world upon Himself, but the same Jesus who said, I have the power to lay down my life is the same Jesus who said, I have the power to take it up again. And that's exactly what He did. And if Jesus is still alive, that means that Jesus continues to work. And so the book of Acts is not so much about the Acts of the Apostles as much as it is about the Acts of the risen Lord. Jesus' ministry did not end with His death and resurrection. It was, in fact, just the beginning of what He would do. Uh, Jesus' plans go beyond rescuing sinners and defeating death. Jesus aims to establish a kingdom. Uh, in fact, if you, um, if you look at Acts 1.6, Jesus' disciples perceive something of this Uh, And they ask him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus essentially says, tells them, no, your plans are way too small. Broaden your vision. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. The kingdom that Jesus is planning to establish is a global kingdom. It was once said that the sun never set on the British Empire because they had land holdings all over the world, but no empire has ever covered every inch of the globe, and yet that is what Jesus is planning to do, to have a kingdom that extends to the ends of the earth. Jesus, of course, has always been king. But the time is coming for that kingship, for that that reign to be made manifest in the world. And so, King Jesus intends to extend mercy to treasonous man who has rebelled against his kingship. He he has paid for their sins on the cross, and so now he can offer free pardon to all who call on his name. And his disciples are to be heralds of the king, declaring this, uh, this message of mercy everywhere. So that rebels and traitors everywhere might humble themselves, lay down their arms of insurrection, and receive his pardon and mercy so that they can enjoy a measure of the kingdom now, with Jesus reigning in their hearts, as well as the fullness of that kingdom later in the age to come in a recreated world where there will be no more sorrow or suffering or death. But before those first disciples, those 120 disciples, could begin their mission to share this good news, they would need the power of the Holy Spirit with them to give them the boldness and the strength and the ability to proclaim this message to a resistant and hostile world. And so though Jesus ascended to heaven, his presence and his power would still be with his people through his spirit. Now, last week we looked at the beginning of Acts chapter 2 where Luke tells us about an incredible day that took place just a few days after Jesus' ascension. It was the holiday of Pentecost. It was the Feast of First Fruits, and there are pilgrims in Jerusalem from every corner of the empire, from every nation under heaven, and the Holy Spirit came with the sound of a rushing wind and, and a manifestation of fire. And the Spirit came upon these 120 followers of Jesus, and they began to speak in foreign languages, foreign tongues that they did not previously know. And they they run out into the streets with joy and exuberance, extolling the mighty works of God. And the thousands of pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem to the temple to worship 
They, they heard and understood this, this gospel proclamation about Jesus in their own native language. It was a sign that Jesus was an international king calling people of every tribe and tongue and nation to be a part of that kingdom. Now, if you are um, in Acts 2, you can look down to verse 12, and Luke says these people were amazed and perplexed. or saying to one another, what does this mean? What is going on? But then you have cynics and skeptics. You always have them in every crowd. Uh, in verse 13, they're making fun of the disciples, and they're saying, no, 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 these guys are drunk. They are filled with new wine. Now, that question, what does this mean, is very important. Because the signs and the wonders of God are never random or arbitrary or just for a fun show. The deeds of God are not just meant to be wondered at, but exposited and interpreted and then responded to. Uh, There is a glorious meaning in the events of Pentecost. We began to consider that last week and we'll continue to consider it this morning. And the Apostle Peter here is going to stand up and he's going to explain the meaning of the moment by preaching a sermon. Now, in all likelihood, verses 14 through 36 are not his entire sermon, but, but Luke just gives us highlights, the high points. And Peter delivers a message for everybody there, for genuine questioners and, and even for the hardened skeptics. And Peter's sermon continues to speak even to this day, even to you in this room, whether you are a believer, whether you're a questioner, even if you're a hardened skeptic, Wherever you find yourself this morning, God has a special word for you in this text. That, uh, that Pentecost day 2,000 years ago is relevant to you right here, right now. So, with that said, please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the perfect and precious words of our God. We are in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to start at verse 14 and read on down through verse 21. God's word says, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose since it's only the third hour of the day, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, would you, by your spirit, empower me to share your word this morning? And would you, by your spirit, give the congregation, the ears to hear the message that the Spirit has to say to Harbin's church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Peter may have been a Southern Baptist because he preaches a three-point sermon, a perfect three-point sermon. If only he just had some alliteration, uh, it would have been even more Baptistic. Now, we just read the first of his three points today. 
We'll get to the other two points in the weeks ahead, but, but for now, we're just gonna consider the beginning of his sermon, and because I'm a good Baptist, I have a three-point sermon on the first point of his three-point sermon, if that makes sense. Now, the first thing that I want us to notice is that the beginning of the last days are here. The beginning of the last days are here. Uh, you've got some, some, some folks here asking, well, what does this all mean? And then you've got some mockers that are saying, these guys are drunk on new wine. Peter is going to address both groups. Verse 14 says that Peter lifted up his voice. He says, give ear to my words. Peter's trying to get everybody's attention. He's probably waving his arms. He's probably standing up on top of something so that he could be seen. And again, last, like last week, I want to draw your attention to the boldness of Peter. Uh, th- this is a different man than we have known before. This was Peter the faithless, Peter the coward, Peter the Christ denier. And now he's, he's putting himself at the center of attention in the city where his master was just murdered. Peter isn't a perfect man, but he is a changed man. Now, how do you account for that? The Holy Spirit. It's the, it's the Holy Spirit. The very presence and power of Jesus is with him and even in him. So as the crowds begin to quiet down, all the eyes are drawn to him. And, and Peter now wants to answer the question raised in verse, thir- uh, verse 12, what, did this, what does this mean? But first, he wants to banter a bit with the hecklers of verse 13. And I can't help but think that, that Peter here has a sense of humor. He's not angry with them. He's not bent out of shape. He's not going to return insult for insult. But surprisingly, he does not ignore them, which is probably what I, I would have done. Instead, he addresses them directly. Again, Peter is a changed man. And he says in verse 15, for these people are not drunk as you suppose since it's only the third hour of the day. I think there's a little bit of playful humor in that. We're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. We haven't had breakfast yet. Jewish breakfast was around 10. He, He doesn't say, we aren't drunk, we don't drink. We're Baptists. He says, hold on tight, guys. It's only 9 o'clock. As if coming back at 11 would have changed things. Now, Peter isn't endorsing being drunk, y'all. It's just, it's playful humor. It's a way of dismissing the foolish comments of these hecklers. I can imagine some laughter going through the crowd at at Peter's quick-witted response. But now he turns his attention to more serious matters, to address that all-important question that others were asking, what does this mean? And he responds in verse 16, But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now, I love how the old King James puts verse 16 where where it says, this is that which was spoken by Joel. This is that. (laughs) This, This thing that is happening right now at Pentecost, the sound of wind, the fire, the speaking of other tongues, what this is, is that. That which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. One of the things you're going to notice as we go through Acts is how often it goes back to the Old Testament. Virtually all that is happening and that is proclaimed in Acts has its roots in Old Testament revelation where where in the Old Testament, of course, there there are types and shadows and hints of something glorious to come and the grand purposes of God. And, And the New Testament reveals and the book of Acts reveals that Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the exclamation point of everything that you see in the Old Testament. And so Peter says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And and next, Peter is going to quote now from Joel. In particular, he's going to quote from Joel chapter 2. 
And, and Peter says, quoting Joel, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, often people wonder if we're living in the last days. I get that question sometimes. Demer, do you think we're living in the last days? Um, and it's especially asked when there are particularly bad and tumultuous things that are going on in the world and that you see on the, uh, on the news, war and political upheaval and, 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 and COVID-19 and, and things like that. And very often people think about the last days uh, and, and, and when they're thinking about it, they're thinking very pessimistically in regards to all the scary and bad things that are happening that seem to be getting worse. But you have to understand how the Jews regarded the last days. Uh, for them, the last days had, had, had to do with the coming of Messiah and his kingdom and the coming of the, of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Albert Barnes is really helpful in his commentary in explaining what this term last days would have meant to Peter's audience. Uh, he writes that the coming of the Messiah was to the Jew the most important event in the coming ages, the great glorious and crowning scene in all the vast future. The phrase last days stood in contrast with the days of the patriarchs, the days of the kings, the days of the prophets. The last days were the days of Messiah. It does not appear that they supposed the world would then come to an end. Their views were just the contrary. They anticipated a long and glorious time under the dominion of the Messiah. And to this expectation, they were led by the promise that his kingdom should be forever, that of the increase of his government, there should be no end. So, so last days for, for, the, for the Jew uh, didn't stir up the, the sense of dread and, and, and pessimistic fear as it, as it does in many of us today. It was, it, it was more of a, of a sense of hope and, and optimism. Uh, at the things to, to come. Uh, and, and for the Jew, those last days meant that the time of the expected Messiah has come. And this is precisely why in his sermon, Peter is going to highlight the activity of the Spirit at Pentecost and the Messiahship of Jesus. Because Peter's message is that the coming of Christ and the Spirit has, has, has inaugurated the last days. And therefore, this is the beginning of the end in regards to God's redemptive purposes in the world in history. The final phase of God's plan is now here. This is the time for restoration and salvation. So the next time somebody asks you, are we living in the last days, <clears throat> you can tell them with confidence, yes. And we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. We are in the final chapter of God's activity prior to the final judgment. Indeed, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, that it is upon us whom the end of the ages has come. And for Peter, one of the evidences that the last days has come is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is my next point. Uh, the, the Spirit is poured out on all. The Spirit is poured out on all. Again, verse 17, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Now, when you consider that statement against an Old Testament backdrop, you're going to see the amazing significance of that statement. In the Old Testament, God's covenant community, the nation of Israel, was His people through whom He worked. Israel was to be a light to the surrounding nations and lead people to God. Now, was the Holy Spirit active in Israel? Yes, to a degree. 
But only a handful experience the special empowerment and, and the special filling of the Spirit. The, the leaders of Israel, the prophets, the priests, the kings, unique individuals set apart for special service to the Lord. And that the Spirit enabled these leaders to serve God and the people, not in their own strength, but in God's strength. And so in the Old Covenant, you'd have a little shower of the Spirit here, and a little shower there, a little sprinkle over here, and a little sprinkle over there. But the prophets predicted a time where that little shower, that little sprinkle, would be turned into a deluge, a torrential downpour, a flood, not just a little over here and a little over there, but everywhere. God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Not, not that every single human being who would ever live would henceforth have the Spirit in this special way, regardless of his relationship to God, but instead that, that every single member of God's covenant community, every single member of God's family would enjoy, would experience the filling of God's Spirit. And the next few verses really drive that point home in different ways. The Spirit of God will be poured out on all peoples, regardless of gender. Notice it says in verse 17, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, regardless of age. He says, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and regardless of social class, male servants and female servants. It's not just the high and mighty like King David, but even lowly servants will receive the Spirit that is poured out on them, and they shall prophesy. Now, I think it's very important here to realize that Peter is not saying that henceforth all of God's people are supposed to be prophets in the sense of receiving fresh, authoritative, direct revelation from God through visions and dreams. Some will. For example, there will be in Acts and throughout the early church, apostles and prophets. Prophets with a capital P, I like to say. It's the special office of prophet, and it was not meant to be occupied by every Christian. In fact, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul even says, are all prophets? And the answer he expects there is no, all are not prophets. Uh, In fact, I would say that today, now that we have God's complete and perfect revelation in the scriptures, there are no more prophets, capital P, because there is no need for that office anymore, just like there's no apostles. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. They laid down the church's foundation through the direct authoritative revelation they received from God for the church. And that foundation has been laid and has been codified here in God's perfect and sufficient word. So both apostles and prophets in that sense are no longer necessary. But that begs the question, How then can Peter take Joel chapter 2 and apply this to the entire people of God? Well, Peter's understanding of this prophecy of Joel would have been set against the backdrop of Old Testament history and the Old Testament prophet. Um, Sinclair Ferguson notes that in the Old Testament, to prophesy was an indication that you had a unique sense of You had in a unique sense the gift of the Spirit of God that brought you into the intimate secrets and fellowship of the throne room of God. It reminds me of what Amos wrote in Amos 3.7, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. 
The prophets were those who had a special connection to God, a special knowledge of God's purposes and will. And therefore, if you were an Old Testament believer and you wanted access to the secrets of God, you'd have to go to the prophets. The prophets had the inside track into the things of God. They had access to the secret counsels of God. In fact, in Numbers 12, uh, God says that if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Notice that language there. Sound familiar? Visions, dreams, prophet. uh, Same kind of language in Joel 2 and in Acts 2. And that, that kind of language of visions and dreams, when the Jew heard that kind of language, he would immediately think of that small select group that, again, had the inside track into the things of God. But interestingly, Moses... The the chief prophet in Israel during his time longed for a better day when he cried out in Numbers chapter 11, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. So not just him, and not just a few leaders that were helping him. Instead, Moses desired a day where all of God's people would receive the spirit and receive insights into the things of God and receive his empowerment for special service and receive and enjoy the intimacy with God that comes with the knowledge of God. And it's not hard to imagine the prophet Joel remembering those words of Moses when he, he himself writes down that wonderful promise from God that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And so, going back to Acts 2 and Pentecost, Peter quotes the Joel 2 prophecy and says, the day's finally here. What Moses longed for, what Joel wrote about, the age of Messiah, the age of the spirit is here at long last. Now, what, what does that mean for you personally? If you are a believer in Jesus, don't think, well, I haven't received visions and dreams, so maybe I don't have the Spirit. And I guess Acts 2 and Joel 2 doesn't apply to me. I'm on the outside. No, no, no. In fact, Romans 8 says that all believers have the Spirit of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 says we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So if that's true... Why then, Deemer, don't I have visions and dreams like Joel 2 and Acts 2 talks about? And I would respond by saying that it is a big mistake to get hung up on those particular manifestations of the Spirit. Just like, remember last week I I was saying that that it's a mistake to get hung up on the particulars of tongues without kind of stepping back and seeing the big picture and understanding what what God is communicating to the the people. In the same way, I I think we need to be very careful about getting hung up on those particular manifestations. Visions and dreams were the categories that Peter's Jewish audience would have understood and would have associated with those small handful in the Old Testament that had special access to God through visions and dreams. But the visions and dreams were not an end to themselves. This is really important. The visions and dreams were not an end to themselves. Instead, they were a means to an end. And what's the end? What, what's the, what was the point of the visions and dreams? Well, remember again what I just quoted in Numbers 12. Put it back on the screen. If, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord... Make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Yes, there are visions and dreams, but what's the end goal? What's the end goal? It's right there. Knowing God. Knowing God. That's the point. 
The prophets knew God in a way no one else did. They, they knew of his will. They knew of his mysteries in a way nobody else did. Only the prophets had this special access to the knowledge of God. And Peter is saying in his Pentecost sermon, no longer, no longer. One teacher puts it this way, and I quote, what Peter now understands is that every single believer in Jesus Christ who has the spirit of the Lord Jesus poured out upon them, has the same intimacy of access to the secrets of God as the prophets because they are all revealed to him, they are all revealed to her in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Author of Hebrews puts it this way, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, oh, there's that word again, that's that phrase again. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You, Harbin's Church, you, Harbin's Church, have received God's final and climactic revelation. You know God through Jesus Christ. And, 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 you, and this perfect and completed revelation, this word, tells you all you need to know about Jesus. And guess what? You understand this word. You understand this revelation. You have a kind of insight into this revelation that others do not have, that unbelievers do not perceive. So, for example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But we have the mind of Christ. This is why you can read the Bible, and maybe you've even experienced this before, you can read the Bible, and you can see and perceive clearly the things of God, and then your unbelieving friend looks at the same thing in the Bible and hasn't a clue about it. They don't get it. What's the difference? Is it because you're smarter than your friend? No. Your friend may be smarter than you. But the reason you get it and they don't is because you have the Spirit of God in you. And therefore, like the prophets of old, you actually have insight into the mysteries of God revealed in Christ through His Word. In fact, I would push even further and say that you are in a superior position than even those Old Testament prophets. You are in a better position than Moses or Ezekiel or Joel. God has revealed more to you than he did to them. In fact, Peter says, not here in Acts 2, but in 1 Peter 1.10, he says that concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, diligently. In other words, the, the prophets of old didn't have all the answers. They didn't clearly see or perceive the fullness of everything that they predicted and everything that they were writing about, and they had to search and study to gain some sort of insight into God's bigger plan. They wrote about things they did not fully comprehend. But you understand them uh, because Christ has come, and God has shown you the fullness of his purposes in Christ to you that are fully revealed in this word. You have a spirit, and you have his word. And so, those of us who live in the age of the Spirit have a greater degree of access and insight into the things of God than any of the prophets of old did. We have more revelation than they had. The, the Apostle John, writing to all Christians, says in 1 John 2, the anointing that you received from him abides in you, 
and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Now, now what does John mean by that? Does he mean that no longer we should have teachers in the, in the church? Should I, should I just kind of leave this pulpit and walk away? No. Indeed, John himself is teaching the believers as he writes them. And the New Testament does set aside certain believers with the spiritual gift of teaching to help believers grow in their understanding of God's word. Instead, John here is echoing what the prophet Jeremiah says. In Jeremiah 31, God promises the new covenant. Now, in the old covenant, God's people constantly failed to obey God. You know why? Because very few of them had the Holy Spirit. Not just for empowerment for service, but, but, but not even for salvation itself. Most of the nation went apostate. And Jeremiah, like Moses, like Joel, looks forward to a new day. And God says that one of the marks of the new covenant is that no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, know the Lord, teaching his neighbor like a prophet, know the Lord, for they shall all know me like the prophets do, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. A universal, see, Jeremiah is talking about a universal experience of knowledge and intimacy with God. It sounds similar to what Joel 2 talks about and what Peter says in Acts 2. And so what John then, the apostle John was saying is not that you shouldn't have teachers in the church or learn from others. Instead, he's saying that you don't need someone to come to you and say, listen to me. Hey, come over here. Listen to me. I have special secret knowledge from the Lord that you need to know about. Nobody else knows about it, but I know it. And I'm going to tell you about it now. And John's like, no, you have been anointed by the Spirit, and so you have just as much access to God and, and the secrets that He has revealed in His Word, and you can experience as much intimacy with God as anyone else. Now, if that is true, there are very important implications and applications for you. When you think about the prophets of old, what was their job? What was their their job description? Was their job just to enjoy their special intimacy with God and just kind of bask in enjoying a relationship with Him? Just kind of deeply thinking about all the mysteries that God has revealed to them? was Was that the job? You know that's not the answer. The Lord revealed His mysteries and His message to the prophets not just for private meditation, but for public proclamation. The prophet's primary job was not foretelling, predicting the future, although there was obviously some of that, but his main job wasn't foretelling as much as it was forthtelling, speaking out, speaking forth God's word and declaring it to the people. Tony Morita in his Acts commentary says that in explaining Pentecost in light of Joel 2, Peter is not saying every believer has the gift of prophecy. Rather, he means that every believer shares the general privilege and responsibility of Old Testament prophets. Such people were able to know God intimately and were commissioned to speak God's word faithfully. They came to know him, they came to know him, mainly through dreams and visions. Now we know him through Jesus Christ, and we can grow in our knowledge through the revealed word of God. But still, he writes, like the prophets, We must declare God's word to the world. It's our mission. And so, in that sense, we're all prophets and have a prophetic ministry and responsibility. John Calvin puts it this way. Calvin says, under the kingdom of Christ, there shall not be 
a few prophets only unto whom God may reveal his secrets, but all men shall be endued with spiritual wisdom so that they can make excellent prophecies. So, the beginning of the last days is here. And the Spirit is being poured out on all so that all God's people will know God and mediate the knowledge of God to the ends of the earth. And we should have a sense of sober-minded urgency in regards to that mission because, and this is my final point, the end of the last days is coming. The end of the last days is coming. Peter goes on to quote the rest of the Joel 2 passage and look at verse 19. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Now, there are some debates over exactly what those things are referring to in verses 19 and 20. Some say that these signs, these things were actually being fulfilled in that present moment in history. Uh, that the signs that took place during the life of Jesus, his miracles, the crucifixion, you remember that during the crucifixion uh, there, there was darkness, uh, and, and, and also Pentecost, there's wind and fire. Uh, some would say that, that these were the fulfillments of what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Uh, I don't hold to that view. Um, I think Peter's citation of this entire section of Joel actually is a reminder that we are living in between the already and the not yet. Uh, the, the, the last days, the, the eschaton, the end, has already been inaugurated with the coming of the Spirit, but those last days that have now been inaugurated will be eventually consummated with the coming day of the Lord. Peter says that magnificent day, I like the CSB translation, that says that glorious day. But Peter here quotes the entire passage from Joel, not because he sees all of the cosmic signs having been fulfilled that day, but because the already and not yet are, are organically connected together. And so these cosmic signs, the sun being darkened, the moon turning to blood, those are not yet, but they are tightly connected to what has already been started with the inauguration of the last days. They're tightly connected so that you should not separate those two. The cosmic signs of verses 19 and 20 are apocalyptic language. Uh, what exactly that will look like is debated, but at minimum, this language is meant to speak of the massive turmoil and upheaval that will lead to the end of all things, to the day of the Lord, uh, the great day when the Lord Jesus returns, which again, Peter calls a magnificent day, a glorious day, which is interesting. Because sometimes Christians are afraid of the end. But for the believer, the end is a, is a glorious ending. It's a glorious day for all who have repented of their sins and trust in Him. As a matter of fact, in 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, Paul associates this, this day of the Lord with the believer's hope and his final salvation. But something else that's interesting is that while Peter calls the day of the Lord a glorious day... Joel's prophecy actually uses a different word. Joel refers to that day as terrible. Terrible. The same day that is a glory for the people of God will be a terror for those who reject God. 
We see something of this in 1 Thessalonians 5 where Paul says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Those who feel safe and secure and at ease in their sinful rebellion will in a moment find themselves confronted by the very wrath of Jesus. The Apostle Peter, in saying that this day of Pentecost is the beginning of the last days, is essentially announcing that now the clock is ticking. Time is moving towards the end of the last days. Time, as we know it, has an expiration date. Things aren't going to go on indefinitely. Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has been resurrected. Christ has ascended. Christ has now poured out His Spirit. Everything that needs to happen for man to be justified before God is now in place. And there's nothing more to do except for Christ to return. And so the beginning of the last days means there is also an end of the last days. There is a termination date. And at the end of the termination date is a court date where man will stand before God. Some people, some people say, well, well, I'll come to God if, if he just shows himself right now. I'll come to God if he does this thing or he does that thing for me. No, 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 no. Everything that needs to be done for you has already been done. The next big event on God's timetable is not him doing what you think he should do. The next big event on God's timetable is the return of Christ. And therefore, from our perspective, y'all, that return can happen anytime, even before this service is over. And boy, I would love that. And if he returns right now, will it be a glorious day for you or a terrible day? Well... Thankfully, Peter ends the first point of his sermon on a hopeful note. Verse 21, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The last days have begun, but they're not yet over. And so Peter, still citing Joel, makes his appeal to the crowd to call on the name of the Lord. And many will heed Peter's evangelistic appeal. We'll read later on in the chapter that 3,000 do. But others will not. Why? Why won't they? Because people do not believe that ultimately God will hold them accountable for their sins. And as the years go by, and Jesus still doesn't come back, and people continue to get away with their sins, some people will conclude that they will always be just fine. Some 30 years after Pentecost... Peter, shortly before his own martyrdom, writes in 2 Peter chapter 3 that scoffers will come in the last days. Oh, there's that word again. He likes that phrase, last days. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? (laughs) Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. I can imagine Peter himself dealt directly with such critics. Yeah, Peter, I heard that sermon you preached 30 years ago. (laughs) You said it was the last days, and Jesus still isn't back. Maybe you were drunk after all. 
But a few verses later, Peter speaks to this, and he says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The reason why this God of wrath has not yet come to bring judgment is because this God of wrath is also a God of love and patience and mercy. If you're here this morning as an unbeliever, have you ever considered that the reason Jesus has not yet returned is because he's waiting for you? He's waiting for you to admit that you're wrong, that you have committed the worst of treasons by rebelling against him and daring to think that your way is better than his, that you and your pride have thought that you could cut yourself off from the life of God and yet still live. And so, friend, if you have not turned from your sins and placed your hope in Christ, I want to urge you to do so even now. I love what the Lord says in Joel chapter 2. Um, before Joel speaks of the great and terrible day of the Lord to come, he says first in verse 12, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Love what he says, even now, after all you have done, even now come, even now return, and he'll receive you. Friend, the last days has begun. The clock is ticking, and in between the beginning of the last days and the end of the last days are the days of grace, the days of mercy and pardon available to all who call on the name of the Lord, and we're going to find out later on in Peter's sermon that his name is Jesus. And even now, you can turn to Him for salvation. But friend, know that eventually time will run out. Time will expire. The clock will stop ticking. Either you will die before the very end, or you will live to see the day of the Lord. And it will be a terrible day if you persist in unbelief. And so, and so Peter, after extolling the great patience of the Lord, goes on to say, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The constant message of the Scriptures is don't wait. Don't wait. Your response to the gospel will determine whether the day of the Lord will be terrible or glorious. And for those of you who have already received Christ and you have the Spirit, are you on mission? The clock is ticking. Are you on mission? You have the Word. You have insights into the mysteries and revelation of God. Are you keeping it to yourself? Or are you sharing it with a world that desperately needs to hear the message.